for an entire plane load of people uh, a three-day journey that involved emergency landings, in-flight assaults on crew members, someone going to prison in Ecuador. In Ecuador, we weren't even supposed to stop in Ecuador. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Workshop. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. I co-founded Anvil, the platform for building full-stack web apps with nothing but Python. And that means I meet a lot of interesting people who use it. So I'm recording conversations with them and putting them on the internet. This time, I'm talking to the CEO and lead engineer from Fairshake, a company that's helping level the playing field in disputes between consumers and big corporations. So what does that mean? When a consumer has some sort of issue with a big company, when they feel taken advantage of or ripped off or mistreated, um, usually they have fairly limited options to address that issue. And what we do is we give them a lot of leverage um, that allows them to bring companies to the table and negotiate a fair resolution to, to those sorts of problems. And how do you do that? Uh, we make it very easy for consumers to access a third-party neutral legal dispute resolution process called consumer arbitration. And uh, we not only make it easy for consumers to access that system and kind of create disputes and claims within in that system, but also navigate it and be successful within it. So how long has the company been going? We were founded back in 2016, so about three plus years at this point. Um, when we were originally founded, uh, we were a very small bootstrapped, um, basically like pet project of, of mine. And over the years, it's evolved into a true sort of venture backed, um, you know, 10 person team pursuing this at a much larger scale. So like, was there just a moment that like a burst of frustration that caused you to say, right, you know, I, this is a massive problem. I need to fix this. Like, where did the impulse to do this come from? What's your background to start with? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I I'm was formerly a corporate attorney that helped big companies buy and sell each other. And um, and after deciding that, that that wasn't my passion and wasn't what I wanted to do with my life, I went and worked for LegalZoom, uh, a consumer legal tech company in the Bay Area and down in LA, um, mostly doing the sort of wackier end of product development for them. So coming up with weird ideas about new services we could deliver, um, doing the market analysis on them, putting up little MVPs, beta testing them. Uh, and, and so I, I, I had a legal tech background, um, also a short stint uh, running an e-commerce company that, that sold ethically made clothing um, and, and then an attorney way back. Um, but I think that my, my main background and what caused me to, to do this was that I'm, I'm a consumer in the US and I, I deal with a lot of companies that are giants. Um, you know, we have a lot of industries in the US that are very consolidated where there are only a few major companies that control the entire industry. So, you know, our, um, not just our utilities, but also our telcos that give us our cell phones and our ISPs, um, our, uh, you know, our, our personal finance companies are controlled by just a couple of big banks that provide all of the savings accounts and credit cards. Um, you know, industries like, like these, I think every consumer has a handful of, of stories of how they feel like uh, their, their bank or their gym or their wireless provider has basically, you know, either misled them or not really delivered on what was promised. 
um, and then more or less told them to, to to buzz off when they contacted customer service about it. So I, you know, just by virtue of being an American consumer, had a huge background of of these sorts of interactions with companies um, where I had wished I had more power in the situation, um, and 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 just felt sort of you know stymied and and, and powerless. So what is the thing that? puts uh, these consumers in such a relatively powerless situation and uh, how does fair shake help like i mean you you were a lawyer you had yeah. presumably this is at least yeah this is a fairly high leverage sort of individual yeah what is the, what's the problem what stopped you being able to fight back when you were in that situation um back you know back several years ago um i was on vacation in south america and i was booked on a flight that was supposed to go from Chile to New York City. And it was, it was Santiago to, to New York City, stopping in Lima. And it was supposed to you know, be, I, I don't know, like 11 hours, 14 hours, something like that total. The airline experienced this like comical series of issues that turned this flight from an 11-hour flight into a 72-hour flight. And it was for an entire plane load of people, uh, a three-day journey that involved emergency landings, in-flight assaults on crew members, someone going to prison in Ecuador. In Ecuador, we weren't even supposed to stop in Ecuador. All right, overnights, overnights in Peru and Ecuador that weren't scheduled. Two extra stamps in my passport. I mean, just just comical, like really terrible. There were there were newlyweds on this flight. Was the arrest the same person as the assault on the crew member, or were those separate incidents? <laughs> the same, same person, same person. All right. There, I, you know, there you can still dig up like news stories and Facebook posts from the people who are on this flight. It was like it was like being on Lost, some like stupid version of Lost. We were this plane load of people going through this horrible experience together, um, and at some point during this experience. Uh, the airline had us all like corralled in this, you know, like part of an airport, like out of the way. And we've been just standing there for like hours. Um, and they walked down the line of this, you know, giant, giant group of people that were like sleep deprived and like had been on airlines for way too long. And they start handing out these pieces of paper and the pieces of paper basically say, you agree never to complain about this, never to sue us about this, to totally like, you know, let us off the hook for this whole debacle. And in return, we're going to give you $300 in flight vouchers. And it's, you know, it, it's a piece of paper with like small print, you know, like, like what you would expect if like a lawyer handed you something. And, you know, everyone was like, ah, this, this is, this really sucks. This is definitely not fair, but like, what am I going to do? Right. You know, what am I going to do to get a better deal than this? Uh So everyone was just signing these pieces of paper and they were signing the pieces of paper because they knew that if they decided to fight it, if they decided to ask for more, it was going to entail them just calling a customer service line where the customer service agent was going to not know what they were talking about and eventually tell them to go away. And they'd spend hours on the phone and the company had all the power to basically tell them to buzz off. And after that point, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to go hire a lawyer for $500 an hour. 
to to try to try to push back on it to your average consumer mindset there's you know that there's no nothing more to do you can release an angry tweet you can maybe leave a bad review but basically when the company tells you how you know they're going to make good on a problem they they caused in most consumers minds that's the end of the road and and you sort of you sort of take what you're offered so so people sign that piece of paper and if they do you out of something that's small enough value that it's not worth paying a lawyer for i guess there's nothing for it and i mean the only other alternative is what class action suits and that also seems like a whole headache which don't really exist they don't really exist in the u.s anymore so they, they exist for some things like medical medical device issues and stuff like that but what most people aren't aware of but what i was aware of as a lawyer was that the class action system in the u.s was gutted back in 2011 and with this with the supreme court decision that that allowed most companies to put these clauses in their contracts that basically say to all their customers, you no longer have access to the public court system. You can't sue us in a class action. If you have a dispute with us, you got to go through this private court system individually. Oh, you know, spending hours pouring through the paperwork yourself called arbitration. And that private court system can be carefully calibrated to be far more inconvenient than the amount of money that any individual consumer could claim back. Exactly. I mean, that's a kind of diabolical genius. Yeah, no, no, it's it's totally genius. It's totally genius. Um, it just happens to also be highly automatable, which is where we come in. Ah. But, you know, the the way this whole system is set up is that you're right on, like you, you hit the nail right on the head for a small value claim. When you're, when you don't have access to a class action and the efficiencies that come along to it, you know, it's not worth your time to pour through your contract you know, figure out all of the paperwork you're going to have to fill out, figure out the language you're going to have to put in there, figure out how to deliver it to the company and get it into this private court system and see it through this process. It's just not worth it. Um, we're, we're talking hours. We're talking, you know, tens of hours potentially of your time, a lot of complexity and a lot of cost. And so everyone, everyone gives up. So, so what did you decide to build instead? So what, what I decided to do was to take all of those, all those transaction costs and hurdles, administrative hurdles to accessing the system, workflow automation and, and other application of technology, bring them down as close to zero as possible. So that for all those folks who are standing in that line, getting handed that piece of paper saying, this is how we, the company, have decided that this dispute is going to be resolved. If they think, no, that what you've decided is not fair. Um, there's a very, very easy, simple, low-cost way for them to go out and challenge it in some sort of, you know, judicial process court system. I see. So first, when this airline messed you around royally, you presumably using your legal skills and an amount of stubbornness that would not have been economically rational, given your billing rate as a corporate attorney you navigated this private system, jumped over the hurdles and caused them to give you a better outcome. Yeah, exactly. I, I went through the process. I went through the process that you're not supposed to go through because it's supposed to be too complicated, too time intensive, too costly. And when I went through that process, I walked out on the other side with thousands of dollars in cash and $1,600 in flight vouchers. Whereas you know everyone who 
had just stood in that line and signed that piece of paper, walked away with $300 in expiring, you know, flight vouchers uh, from a South American airline. So when you say uh, Fair Shake sort of gives people more leverage, would it be fair to say what they, what you're offering them is the kind of economies of scale in dealing with this private court system that is arbitration, the same kind of economies of scale that the company has because they have a whole legal department to throw at it. It's much more costly and time intensive for a company to meet your claim and go through this process than it is for you as the consumer to bring the claim. It's it's flipped the tables completely on a company. Why is that? Like, How do you make that happen? Companies made sort of a devil's bargain. When they geniusly built this private court system, um, they, in order to convince the state governments and the court system in the U.S. that it wasn't a gross violation of everyone's constitutional rights to deprive people of access to the public court system, they had to, they had to throw in all these sweeteners to make the system look very consumer-friendly. And as part of that, you know, basically what they said is we'll pay the costs of this private court system entirely. Oh. Yeah. And so when a consumer accesses the court system, this private court system, um, which we make it incredibly easy to do, the majority of the costs of this court system, including the administration of these claims, the hiring of a retired judge or an attorney to kind of oversee the proceedings, dragging many, many, many thousands of dollars for each one of these cases, falls on the company. So the the way that the system is built, it was supposed to be incredibly complicated and time intensive for consumers so that they wouldn't access it, but it was supposed to be costly for companies. And what we've done through applying technology is to reduce all of the complexity and time intensiveness for the consumers, but all the cost is still left on the company. Wow. So I think instead of instead of evening the playing field, we've like turned the tables on the on the companies a little bit, which delivers enormous leverage to the consumers. Because obviously the companies don't want to pay for these things. I see. So you can actually then use the threat of I will go through this arbitration proceeding as a sort of negotiating leverage to get a much more sensible outcome. Right, right. I mean, I think I think the, the system is designed, I think, in a way that ultimately is supposed to not force people to go through a legal proceeding, but to really encourage companies coming to the table and interacting with you like you're a meaningful human being, not treating you like you're disposable, not treating you like you're a number on a screen, but you know, really coming to the table, figuring out how you've been affected as a consumer by their actions and offering you some sort of reasonable compensation for that. And what we've done is we've put all the ingredients in place to cause that dynamic to actually occur. So when someone hits our front door and a company knows that they can go through this process very easily, it means that the company is going to very quickly, you know, come to the table and try to solve the problem in a more reasonable way than they would have, you know, a day ago. And how does this work out in practice? So in, it works out very well in practice. Um, we uh, are, you know, our average, our average user gets something like $700 in combined cash awards and debt cancellation when they submit a claim. 
Um, the majority of claims are resolved within 90 days, which I know is not, it's not instant, um, but it's, it's pretty good when you're talking about a magnitude of claim that's like several hundred dollars to mm-hmm. you know, several thousand in some cases dollars. Um, our NPS is through the roof. People are really, really happy with this experience of kind of all of a sudden being powerful in their interactions with a giant company. Um, I think I think it's you know people find it to be a very uh, surprising and and empowering experience, and they they walk away with really I think very fair and very exciting kind of resolutions to their big issues. That's awesome. Which industries have you started out with? Because uh, you're pretty young as a company. Have you like chosen to focus on specific segments to begin with? Originally, when I started this out more or less as a side project, it was all over the place. I mean, shipping companies, credit card companies, travel. Um, but we very quickly focused in on, on telcos. So your your wireless provider, your ISP, cable and satellite television, um, they, they, in the United States, tend to be the bulk of uh, consumer complaints. So we, we, focused, we focused in there and spent... Uh, about a year and a half really un- deeply understanding that industry and the types of disputes that were in that industry and building relationships with um, you know the dispute resolution departments in those companies doing doing a lot of the groundwork to make that industry successful and then as we matured we expanded to several other industries so now you know we're also in personal finance um, student loans credit cards banks um, in gyms, which are, you know, a huge source of, of consumer complaints in the US. I mean, especially right now with the pandemic, a whole bunch of people are... Exactly. I have definitely seen the headlines for that. Yeah, as, as we're recording this, you know, almost every gym in the United States is closed and most of them are continuing to bill their members uh, monthly fees. And, you know, we've been seeing a flood of, of claims and we're against the major chains in the United States. And we're, you know, continuing to help people challenge that. And um, in this time where everyone's cash strapped, you know, pull back their uh, $100 a month, $200 a month in, in gym fees. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the, you know, new, new sort of uh, gig economy and sharing economy tech companies um, we, we help people with. So Uber, Airbnb, companies like that, um, we're, we're, we're expanded and our, our goal is to basically be a very comprehensive place where you can go to, um, to resolve any type of consumer dispute, not just, you know, not just something that happens on your phone bill, but also, um, you know, and any other major company that kind of does you wrong, you can, you can come to us too. I have to say, since I first met you guys, I have always been really impressed by that mission having, like I assume everybody else, my social media feeds and news feeds full of a relentless drumbeat of large companies screwing over anybody who isn't lucky enough to get a major news organization to run a story about them. Uh, And it is great to see Mm -hmm. a tilting of the playing field more in the consumer's favor. So we're on this podcast uh, because obviously of your technology choices, but I'm actually really interested in what happened long before you started using Anvil because when you first worked out that you could apply automation 
to level up this playing field and make it easier for consumers to access this resolution stuff. Uh, you were an attorney, right? That that wasn't your skill set. So how did you first like start to prototype this business? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fantastic question. Um, and I, I think I got lucky. Um, and the way I got lucky was that I had had a couple of experiences that had opened my eyes to the sort of low code, no code resources out, uh, out there. And, um, they gave someone like me who didn't have an extensive background in software development and who didn't have a giant budget, the ability to really quickly build, uh, and, and iterate on pretty complex software. So, um, you know, form builders, uh, visual database builders um, that that frequently have kind of application drag and drop application builders on on top of them, um, you know, third party apps that make it really easy to send automated communications like Twilio, um, and you know the the ecosystem around Zapier um, that allowed you to kind of tie all those things together um, through their their various APIs. Um, it you know it it allowed someone like me, who's not a technical person to go out and build something that I think many technical people would actually have difficulty building, you know, if they had to do it from scratch, um, just with their own code. So I'm fascinated by this. What was the application you built capable of doing? How far did you get with these low code, no code systems? You know, how, how much was your application capable of doing when it was only like attorneys building it yeah uh it did a lot um and and you know obviously it didn't do everything because we we had to you know we had to push through some boundaries and that's how we wound up with with anvil um before we we migrated to anvil we had a sophisticated application with a user management system that allowed you to go in, create claims, watch them as they move through the process, you know, store all of your documents on the back end, all the documents were being automatically created and, you know, sorted into sort of file structures that allowed us to do everything we needed to do as far as mailing and sending um, would allow uh, communications between the companies and the, the consumers who we call claimants um, where the companies could, you know, take all sorts of actions to object to claims or request information, um, you know, that allowed people to manage claims both through our web application and in some cases through SMS. Uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was a fairly sophisticated application. And um, when, when we were building solely on the kind of low-code stuff, it wasn't no-code at that point, it was low-code, um, you know, I was pretty confident that I could rebuild like an ugly Uber on it if I really needed to. Like almost anything you could kind of replicate. The problem was that it was ugly and it was weird. Like you would, you would always run into technical issues that you just couldn't quite overcome or you'd have like weird anomalies in the system um, that you couldn't quite overcome. It would always look very funky, but you could, as far as functionality goes, build some pretty impressive stuff on it. So, yeah. So, okay. So you started to hit those boundaries 
of you know uh what you could do visually what you do you could do functionality wise odd barriers uh from these systems uh so i guess you know we are here because you then uh chose to migrate your application to anvil uh, do you want to tell me about how that came about that came about because brian is a big fan and a fantastic advocate for anvil so i, I think i'll let brian uh take over from here i guess when i first met teal um i was i was kind of winding down uh, my previous startup and that's where i i got started with anvil because we got locked into a problem where um we had built our it was a vr photo and video sharing app kind of like 3d instagram we we got stuck in a situation where um our money was dwindling and we like i myself couldn't necessarily like go into their code and like really build on it i was only i was mainly a python developer and so there there was some level of um of distance between me being able to go into there um, and into the app and then really like continue to iterate on it myself and so it's the problem of outsourcing like we see it in customers uh, as as tiny as a embryonic startup and as huge as big companies the moment you commission someone else to do it the problem is you can only ever change anything by issuing instruction and waiting however many days for however many billable hours yeah like that that was that was the, the situation that we that we were in and so i was looking for um we were looking to move our, our product to the web and so i was just googling web-based uh python um app development and um, I was going down the Django route and then I found Anvil. And then, so I, I was just, you know, kind of like learning Anvil for a couple months, just on, on my own projects, you know, trying to, uh, you know, be able to just like put more control in, in, in my hands, um, where I wouldn't necessarily need to be relying on, on other people so much. And, um, so I, I was really, really pleased with, with Anvil. And then within two months, it's like, oh, I, I used to think I was just more of like, kind of like a, you know like a math and science person, but now I am a full stack web developer. And I felt like what I was able to do was uh, like really comprehensive. And so I was mainly looking for jobs related to like uh, cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin. Um, but then Radvocate actually stood out to me because at this time they're called Radvocate. So I, I reached out and then me and Teal got together a couple times. And I think right off the bat, I probably started talking about Anvil, uh, kind of like my, my trajectory with it. And I felt like that was like the, the like it was like a match made in heaven, honestly, where um, where Anvil kind of it, it has some of those same elements of like the low code, no code tools where like you're not really thinking about deployment um, issues. You're not really thinking about some of those like major like technical infrastructure decisions. You're, you're just building your application. But you're doing it with an industrial strength programming system, right? Yeah, yeah. I was pretty much uh, saying that we sh like we should be building this on Anvil because it'll still give us a lot of the same things that that we like about the the low code no code tools. Uh, but where the the code that we're writing is the code that actually delivers our our like customers' experience. Like we we don't really need to worry so much about like the code that makes everything run on the back end because people like you have built that well. Um, I'd say I was very impressed with what they were able to do with these no-code tools. Like, it was really impressive. I have to step in and agree here. Uh, we, being who we are, see a lot of our customers as sort of refugees from attempts at uh, using no-code, no-code tools, and then discovering that they just don't have the power concerned. And uh, 
I therefore see a whole bunch of actually fairly technically skilled people who can program in Python who have tried to use these low-code, no-code tools and uh, Teal, what you describe is by far the most impressive accomplishment with one of these tools that I have ever, ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it, I, it was really, really amazing. And um, and in many ways, like many of those, uh, the things that Teal built like years ago, like we're just sunsetting now, like kind of out of necessity and out of like convenience. Um, so even like a lot of those no-code integrations, they still interacted with Anvil. And so... Um, like for instance, early on, they they had used a, a platform called Knack, which is like a database and like app builder, and um, we we kind of like ran our Anvil system in parallel with that for a while. It, it caused a lot of issues. It was it was a source of major headaches, but still, like I, I think that it was um, kind of a like it spoke to like how interoperable Anvil is, where even if you've got started on like a, a, like a no code, low code system, you could um, like start integrating with Anvil, like using what you already have. And then like when the time is right, it's, you know, you, you can transition off of it. So that's the wonder of using Python. If it's got an API, you can drive it. Yeah, yeah. And so how long did that uh, transition overall take? So you started last May, we're recording this in 2020. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So we we started in May, um, and so for the first uh, couple of months, we we're um, just kind of like prototyping, and then um, we we got a. I'd say that there was a, a version that was like pretty close to being ready to to ship that would start taking over a lot of the old processes, and then. So when was that? When you had that version? Over the summer, so August and September. So by September, you had something that was nearly ready to take over. Yeah, and and then what. Um, and then what we decided to do was uh, we, we brought on someone that that I had worked with on on my old startup. I we we brought him on to um, just kind of split the task because at that time I was building like all the stuff on the front end and on the back end. And then uh, so we we onboarded him, and then we pretty much rebuilt the the back end, uh, just like our 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 own API. And um, then from him joining in September, we launched like the the new system fully on in November. So this, and this includes... That is pretty fast turnaround. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it felt like forever. I was... It was actually faster. It was it was faster than that. I, and like Brian, Brian's being a little bit modest here, but he, so we did, we, we did the migration sort of modularly. We've got a different, a couple of different, you know, components to our, pro, our product. And one thing that, we'd always had was a really powerful internal facing, you know, claim management tool, our, our CRM basically. And it had a lot of features back when it was low code. Um, but Brian within a couple of months had rebuilt this CRM tool in a way that you couldn't get with Salesforce, like not even close. It was, you know, so efficient, so tailored to exactly what we needed it to do. Like, it has so many cool features that I think could be spun off as their own like good B2B SaaS products built into it. It's just this awesome internal tool. Um, and, and he had that up and running, you know, within like a, a, a two months or something like that of, of hitting the ground. Um, it, it was wild. And I think that, you know, that's the sort of thing that you know, people, people pay Salesforce hundreds of thousands of dollars a year 
for something that's way worse to achieve not quite that yeah yeah which <laughs> which and which is like not actually bespoke and tailored to their business and um and i think that the the ease of of developing on anvil the speed of developing on on anvil allowed allowed brian to rebuild that component very quickly and and i think you know over over the summer and after we brought tie on we were really continuing to like modularly attack different parts of the, the product and everything is constantly a work in progress but um but we saw we saw sort of good results very very quickly that is awesome were there particular uh parts of or features of anvil that you felt helped you like more than you thought they would um the built-in email handling is awesome that that like that was because that, that's like a core part of the product is is just like communication with our customers do you use mostly the sending or mo- or the receiving uh, so we send with SendGrid, but we handle incoming with um, the Anvil built-in. So you can just write a function and say, call this function whenever an email arrives and just get on with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was really convenient. Things like secrets, that that built-in, that, I mean, you know, it's something that's like, you know, not, it doesn't, you know, blare in your face every day, but like, I think that's like a critically important part. Um, the, the data tables, uh, just like, you know, how easy it is to to create a data table and then, um, how the data table just like reveals itself through the autocomplete in the IDE. I, I think that's a major productivity booster is that like you don't really need to look at documentation. Um, you can just like start typing and then it's kind of like a constant sanity check where like if the autocomplete is is writing the next line of code for you, you know that everything's uh, like linked up correctly. And the, the data table is like probably the like the most high impact feature. I think that's awesome. I, I could go on. I mean, the, the form, the form builders are awesome. I mean, now I, I feel like I've started to like fully use like all the functionality of Anvil, but earlier on when I was like kind of just starting to, to crack that, um, it's like every time I would, I would like learn some new thing, I would, I was like completely blown away and it felt like it, I was like, why did I know this before? <laughs> so what about interacting with stuff outside Anvil? Cause you said that you were migrating over from NAC and actually, you know, being able to use those APIs. Did you mostly just use that from raw Python code mm-hmm. or were you using the uplink? Um, so like with connecting to NAC, we were just using NAC's API. And so just using the, just like the normal request library um, in Python. So, so, so simple. You didn't even mention it. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. And th- there's some other kind of wonky integrations from the old one, like our old legal doc generation system actually was done by us sending an email to this like weird email address that would then like create a, a PDF in this, um, in this form builder that we still use, it's called Cognito forms. And so we just transitioned that over recently. And so like, you know, even just like, you know, integrating with things that are weird, like, Oh, you can just send an email to it. Um, I, like, would you send an email to it and then it would send you an email back? Uh, no, it would deposit the legal document in a Google Drive. Um, <laughs> oh wow! And so, yeah, and so yeah, it was it was kind of wonky, but it worked fine. Like uh, I think we we've stopped because we just started reaching our quotas, and yep. um, so uh, like, but yeah, I mean, just like you, linking out to any type of API just like works out of the box, and the autocomplete's pretty nice um, on that part, and then. Uh, we use Uplink um, mainly for our own like internal debugging. So like if anyone has an issue there where they like need us to like look at the status of a claim, uh, we like like my setup is I just have a Jupyter notebook open um, like for the different apps 
And if I need to like go in and like check on the status of a claim or check if this claim has a legal document assigned to it, um, I just do that all through Uplink. Plugging in a Jupyter notebook for debugging is like, yeah, that is also what Uplink is for. It's a Swiss Army knife. So that's extremely cool. So given that this is how far you've got, like, in the last year, you know, where are you now and what's next? What's next for the business is is really expansion. I, I mean, we're we're already processing claims against almost 60 companies, but we want that to be hundreds within a, a couple of, of months. And in addition to that, we just want to scale. I, I mean, we we think the last over the last six months, the goal, and this has really been what Brian and, and Ty um, have been working on was to to build a product on Anvil that we thought was scalable to an actual, you know, significant consumer market. And and um and I think that we've we're we're basically at a point where what we've got could run at a at a pretty substantial scale without um without causing you know too many frictions for us. And and We've got a we've got a really awesome product. Um, we've already you know had about almost ten thousand users go through this process. Um, we, we think it's pretty well tested, and and we're really we're really looking to grow at this point. So I think you know from from a business perspective, we we recently cl- closed a decent round of of fundraising, and and we're we're preparing more or less to just step on the gas at this point. So speaking of which, like. What's the long run goal? You know, what yeah, what do you want to build in the long run? Yeah, the long run run goal is to, you know, durably change the power dynamic between individuals, like us little, you know, individual human beings and these giant corporate monolithic organizations that provide all of our everyday, you know, goods and services. So right now we think that that power dynamic is really skewed in favor of the companies, um, and and we think that uh, we can build a world in which you know an individual when something goes wrong in the relationship with a big company um, they get they get treated fairly and they get they get treated like a real human being um, and not some sort of you know just disposable you know line on a spreadsheet somewhere. Uh, and I think I think we can do that within a couple of years. So I mean, as you as you reach the point of wanting to make a dent that size in the state of the world, uh, what are like the the biggest macroscopic factors you're thinking of? Uh, you know, how do you think the companies are going to respond? Do you are you expecting them to try to lobby for regulatory changes to to make the system less accessible? I mean, you you were featured in the New York Times very recently. Congratulations for that, by the way. Uh, and uh, something that article was uh, referring to uh, was the way that these um, these dispute resolution systems uh, were already, you know, not quite up to the load. Which, I mean, itself just speaks to the evil genius of the plan, right? If they stood up a system that literally was not sized for any of for any substantial fraction of the people they've wronged to seek redress, then that's kind of, you know, by design set to screw people over. Uh, but like, as, you know, right. as the consequences of their decision start to bite, you know, what kind of responses are you expecting? 
Yeah. So first off, um, I think the most important perspective here is keeping in mind that the companies have already won. And no matter how big we get, no matter how well we do our job in kind of leveling the power imbalance, the companies have still won. And relative to 10 or 15 years ago, there's going to be less liability, less check on their practices than under the old system. So, you know, the, the companies don't like that we exist, but they definitely don't want to go back to the bad old days in their eyes of, you know, rampant class actions with multi-billion dollar liability. That's like a CFO's nightmare. So, you know, really, really what we're saying is companies, yeah, you won, you built this new system. We're just going to make it work. We're going to make it do exactly what you said it was going to do. We're going to make it a fair and efficient way for individual consumers to bring disputes they really care about. Not like stupid little gotcha stuff, but like real disputes, real ways in which you've injured them. Um, you know, as you said, there are all sorts of hurdles external to us to doing that. I mean, the scalability issue is not so much on our side. It's about scaling the private court system. It's about scaling the internal dispute resolution teams in these companies. It's about helping them be more efficient at the way that they price these disputes, manage these disputes, and resolve these disputes so that they don't turn into the, the arbitrations, so that they never go to the court system. And luckily, you know, I think we have opportunities to help build that software that helps those companies do these things more efficiently. We're squarely on the consumer side of things, but we also you know, have a, a facet to our product that's a free dashboard experience for companies that makes it much more efficient for them to just manage, evaluate, and resolve these disputes too. So I, you know, I, think, I think that we're going to see a lot of growing pains as, like you said, the system was not ever built to be used and now it's being used. And you know, there are all sorts of pressures that you can go and Google and read about if you want. Um, but I, I, think, I think that we have good technological ways to, to help everyone around us scale and kind of meet the potential that the system was designed for. Well, I wish you the very best of luck with that mission. To wrap up, there are two questions I always ask. And the first one is, what's the most surprising thing you've learned in the process of building Fairshake? Maybe Brian first? I guess I, I'm surprised at like the scope of this. Like this has really given me an insight into like everything that these companies are doing to people. Like I was fine with like, you know, Comcast is like overbilling me. Like, you know, I sometimes I just like, you know, kind of batmize it, like whatever. But like just some of the egregious things and just like the it's it's almost like a systemic way that these companies just like screw people over. Like I was actually really surprised that like how bad some people have it from from companies that that you would think should have um, you know, should have it together. Like I, I'd say that that's, that's been pretty surprising to me. Teal, what about you? What surprised you? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think in keeping with the topic of this podcast, I've been surprised at every step of the way uh, about how easy it's been to build really crazy technology. Um, you know, I, I look at, we're a Silicon Valley based company or we're a Bay Area based company or a venture-backed company, and we look around at our peers, and they've all got these massive engineering budgets, and they all have these massive engineering teams. And I think we're building 
better, cooler stuff than what a lot of them are building. Um, and I think we build it faster and I think we build it cheaper. Uh, and we're certainly more nimble and reactive to the stuff that we're learning as, as our products out there in, in the world. Um, and, and I think that the barrier to entry to, to building technology and applying it to a lot of problems like what we're applying it to is way lower than people assume. So, you know, I, I, I was surprised that I, as a non-technical person, as a lawyer, um, was able to stumble into something like this and get it off the ground with almost no, you know, almost no fun funding, basically just, basically just bootstrapped. And I'm continuously amazed at what Brian and Ty are able to pull off, you know, on, on four hours notice using tools like Anvil. And, uh, and, and so I, you know, I, I, I say that because I would also want to encourage people who were like me, who thought that there was no way they could stand up a full stack, scalable, you know, consumer web product or something like that. Um, that if you've got a solution, you know, a technical solution to a, to a big problem, um, there are ways that you can go out and build a real product around it. Wow. So for a final question, in one sentence, why Anvil? It's like I have like a like a full like staff of like senior web development engineers on my team. Like every time I open the site. Wow. From a business perspective, Teal then, why Anvil? So I, I mean it's very similar to what I said before, but you know, it just allows us to do everything faster and cheaper than everyone else. And uh, and I think it it allows us to be incredibly nimble and responsive to what we're learning in real time. Um, and, and change things on a moment's notice without having to go out to some outsourced team and ask them for a proposal and they're going to take two weeks to get back to us or even have to go to some in-house, you know, unwieldy, you know, scrum team through a project manager and try and get them to do something that's going to take, you know, two to four weeks or something. Um, Anvil allows us to, to just stay on our toes, move really quickly and do it at a very low cost. All right. Teal Lido, CEO, and Brian Herrera, lead engineer of Fairshake. Thank you both very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to Stories from the Workshop. I've been Meredith Luff. I've been talking to Teal Lido and Brian Herrera of Fairshake. And if you want to learn more about them, you can find them at fairshake.com. If you want to hear more episodes or to subscribe to this podcast, you can find us at anvil.works slash podcast. This episode was edited by Baz Richardson. The music is by Signal Smith. And I'll be back next month with more stories from the workshop. See you next time.